Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, we're starting again. So just so you, you, you get a sense of the richness of the tradition and, and the nuances in the Qur'an. So, I, I, thought, I mean, I keep saying because I, I just feel, I couldn't find my notes, but, uh, so I'm doing a lot from memory, but so, uh, but I did find, I was able to retrieve one little, so for instance, one of the early tabi'een, Sahl, um, said about al-bayt al-ma'mur, وَتَأَوَّلْ سَهْلٌ أَنَّهُ قَلْبٌ عِمَارُتُهُ إِخْلَاصُهُ So, for the Tabi'i Sahl, the reference to Bayt al-Ma'mur is a reference to the heart. And how, how you... But that opinion uh, flourished and was developed to considerable heights, I believe that it, it was the early inspiration that the the, the Sahaba understood Surah Tapur with, and it was developed to considerable heights by various Sufi commentators on the Quran, or Sufi-esque, meaning that they might have not belonged to Sufi Tariqah, but they were influenced by Sufi methodologies of tafsir. Um, and it's remarkable that you find this consistency also between the Shia and Sunni tafsir. Um, okay, so in, in the interest of, of time, and because I do want to there's several really important points that we need to deal with. Okay, so then, after Al-Qasam, Jawab Al-Qasam, what is Allah swearing about? The oath which alerts you to the, to the critical things and what is the deliverable. The deliverable that in Azaba Rabbika Nawaka. I'm looking at the, uh, just a translation. Um, the torment of your Lord will surely come to pass. The punishment, the consequence that, yes, you now have the ability to maneuver and negotiate to construct and create your tour, your anchor, the mountain, your open book, and your entire household, and your aspirations, and your vision, and your motivation and what you aspire for, what you want to achieve, the, the saqf, in the midst of the challenges of life, al-bahr al-majjur, but 
the critical thing to remember is that there is no doubt if you think that somehow you can fudge the issue of Allah's punishment it's not the case now remember that in this context the pre-Islamic Arabs, although they believed in deities, they didn't believe in a hereafter. They didn't believe in resurrection and they didn't believe in punishment or reward. But they believed in deities. And like Judaism, especially Judaism of, of that time, Judaism is a complex phenomenon, but uh, a good part of Judaism for a good part of its history um, emphasize consequences in the here and now. If you're good, you're rewarded here. If you're bad, you're punished here. But the idea of resurrection and consequences in the hereafter is very weak in the Jewish tradition. And especially in the among Karaite Jews who are the Jews of the area. But anyway. Um, in Christianity, Remember, this is the age of Catholicism. There is no Protestant Christianity. And hell and heaven is contingent on the church. The church is the, go is the one that defines who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And often, it, it is when we say the will of the church, it was an imperial will because it was the, the church that was in alliance and in fact controlled by the Byzantine Empire, a prominent and powerful empire at the time. And often what, what was needed to make to heaven were indulgences, the, the, the spending of money to buy uh, forgiveness. Arabs at the time were through and through pragmatists. If they worship, they worship to attain a blessing here and now. If they gave something to the deities, they gave something to the deities for protection in the here and now. They completely resisted the idea that there's consequences beyond this life. And so when the Quran is resolutely coming and saying, and in terms of this paradigm shift, you know, this is the certain reality, is that it will come, the, the, the promised punishments will come. And so, there's nothing that can prevent it. يَوْمَ تَمُورُ السَّمَاءُ مَوْرًا وَتَصِيرُ الْجِبَالُ سَيْرًا فَعِيرٌ يَوْمَئِذٍ لِلْمُكَذِّبِينَ So, a common theme in the Quran throughout is to tell you that when that time comes, the nature of reality itself will change. Because when you read things like Yawma Tamuru Sumaura wa Tasiru Jibalu Sayra, the 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 mountains will literally be shifting and moving. 
Well, I mean, how do you conceptualize that? Other than a complete redoing of reality. And time and again, Allah is alerting you, you, you know, this reality that you have in your, in your world is a constructed reality, but it is entirely contingent on the divine. And in an instant, when the divine wills, everything that you take as the stable reality would be shifting in very drastic and dramatic ways. And when that time comes, those who have not taken life seriously, and here notice, الَّذِينَ هُمْ فِي خَوْضٍ يَلْعَبُونَ From the Quranic perspective, when your entire life is about business deals and getting ahead and increasing your savings, that's play, that's yalab, that's lab, that's being playing around. From the Quranic perspective, all these pursuits that we take very seriously in our highly pragmatized life is nonsense. Unless it is directed for the right purpose, it is nonsense. And the reality of how much nonsense it is will come to us when the nature of physical reality itself changes. At that time, would say, I mean, you, you again, remember, our goal is to be what the Prophet ﷺ is, right? In the eyes of the Lord. You want to be in the eyes of the Lord? Internalize the meaning, because this is where we're heading. I let the cat out of the bag at the very beginning. You want to be in the eyes of the Lord? Understand that in that instant, when you are answering for what you've done with your time, what you've done with your body, what you've done with your life, and as you answer for that, whatever you cannot justify as directed towards a cause, anchored in the divine, is playfulness. How much playfulness is Allah going to tolerate? What was an intelligent person, do you want to take Allah for granted and say Allah will tolerate 90% of my life playful? 50%? Ask yourself, how much of your life is land? And how much of that will be tolerated by Allah? And how much of that life makes the foundation of your home, Al-Baytul Ma'mur, nonsense. Notice that Surah Al-Tur is about self-deception, and we'll get there. It is about delusion. So, the expression, Yawma 
يدعون إلى النار جهنم دعا هذه النار التي كنتم به تكذبون كنتم بها تكذبون يدعون دعا they will be literally being shoved along to hellfire that image among the Arabs that I told you converted because Surah Al-Tur or went into some existential crisis often it occurred when because that, that image of being shoved along towards Jahannam is a terrifying one. It's like you, you, you're scared and you're hesitating. You don't want to walk ahead, you don't want to wash ahead, and you're being shoved along. Now, who's shoving you along? It could be the crowds, it could be angels. According to hadith that we don't need to get into, it would be the angels who are shoving people along. Uh, but anyway. Okay. Now, so here is the hellfire that you spent your life not sure about. So many of us, if we're being truly honest with ourselves, the rub for our iman, is it really? Is it really that what we've done is bad enough to deserve severe punishment? Allah addresses that. Okay, here it is. أَفَسِحْرٌ هَذَا أَمْ أَنْتُمْ لَا تَبْصُرُونَ So, here it is. So, what, what, what now? Is this a delusion? أَفَسِحْرٌ هَذَا A remarkable image. So, is this a mirage now? Is this a fiction? Because it is undeniable, the only reality before you. If you read the Quran with your heart and soul, it, if you don't tremble with it, something is wrong with you. Because it takes you deliver it really it answers all your inner thoughts and dimensions okay so here it is you weren't sure you went back and forth in your life you thought well maybe maybe this maybe that. okay here it is now is this a mirage is this some nightmare is this a fiction a fasihrun haza And then the very harsh reality. Notice how, how harsh it is, how, how the momentum, the harshness is, is churning up to deliver a very soft and beautiful point. What is the harshest? Islawha, fasbiru aw la tasbiru, sawa'un alaykum. So, are you going to persevere, not persevere? You're going to be able to take it, not take it? It doesn't matter. 
It's the only reality that confronts you. It's very harsh. It's telling you no appeals, no begging, no justifications, no explanations, and no special circumstance if you deserve that. This is a response to your deeds, to your deeds. Okay. A terrifying image of reality. And as typical of Quranic style, it immediately shifts to tell you of a very different reality. And that's the reality of those who were thoroughly cognizant of their mountain, of their home, of their aspirations, and of the way they navigated the torrents of life. Several important points here. Al-Muttaqeen, which is more, which quite often the Quran refers to those as the Muttaqeen. Muttaqeen, those who are cognizant. The context means cognizant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Notice the imagery of enjoyment. They are saved from hellfire, okay? They are inclining on, as often the, the image that you find in the Quran, inclining on sofas, drinking and eating, having a great pleasurable time. A lot of the Mufassirun note that this notion of inclining ala surar, either surar or whatever the reference to sofas, Persians and Romans, the elite, the rich class in Persia and Rome, would drink and eat only in, in inclining positions. If you were working class, you would drink or eat sitting up, like you sit at a table now. If you were the aristocracy of society, you would eat and drink inclining. You might have seen that image in some art, but that's exactly, it was a cultural production. The Quran presents that image by basically saying you are, if, 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 if on the one hand, it addresses the physical reality that people at the time would connect to. But, as we've, we've talked about before, but we, we, we should underscore it here as well, because I'll show you for instance an example. Inclining, drinking, and eating. Now, if this is what 
you will respond to as the definition of fulfillment and reward, it will appeal to you. But there is a long tradition, because this comes up in the modern age all the time, and anyway. So this is, for instance, an example from Tastira Gilani, which uh, the guys helped me find uh, today, because the, uh, so for, uh, he says, This is, we, we give them, we give them fruit. So he says, من المعارف والحقائق الواردة المتجددة آنا فآن حسب الشؤون الإلهية وتجلياته الجمالية والجلالية. What he's saying is, in this reality, fruit is relative. If you are a person who wants an apple, a juicy apple, you might have a juicy apple. But if you're a person whose your fruit is not a juicy apple, your fruit is a further insight in the beauty of the divine, then that will be your fruit. Note the way that Surah Tur deals with reality itself. So when it even it talks about Jannah, so it tells you, as to those who believe, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَاتَّبَعَتْهُمْ ذُرِّيَّتُهُمْ بِإِيمَانٍ أَلْحَقْنَا بِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّتَهُمْ وَمَا أَلْتَنَّاهُمْ in one Qira'a and in another Qira'a وَمَا أَلْتَنَّاهُمْ مِنْ عَمَلِهِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ So there is another level of happiness and that is who you are going to be with. If you are, and there is a big, long debate in the tradition about what Zuriya means. Is it generations beyond you or before you? Or is it your people, like your friends, your companions, your students, those that you feel close to, that you are part of the reward is the companionship that you're able to attain but within with the within the principle of individual accountability why is this important because there is debate in the islamic tradition if your son is not very good will allah put your son with you in Jannah just to please you. And this is a very big debate in the tradition. 
many scholars said, yes, but only if doing so wouldn't violate the principles of justice. So in other words, if, if it's giving your son extra credit so that there can slightly be bumped up to your status, but not if it's going to reward someone who doesn't deserve reward. Others said, no, it depends on the piety of Waliullah, that, that you could have the type of piety that appeals, and this is a long debate that we'll get into in another surah, inshallah, because Surah Ibrahim presents us this was a was a better opportunity. But the idea of his as a companionship in the hereafter is clearly present in Surah Tur. Now we come to a two things. What time is it? Okay. I keep telling myself I, I don't want to do six hours to, because no one watches six hours, but okay, but it's very, okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> a, a note, there is يَتَنَازَعُونَ كَأَسًا لَا لَغْوٌ فِيهَا وَلَا تَأْسِيمٌ um, what is this cast? If, if, by the way, if it's something, if it's full, it's called a cast. If it's empty, it's called an ina in Arabic. But, um, and most, if you open most traditional tafsir, they tell you this is that you drink khamr. Um, but khamr that will not cause intoxication and will not cause, and in some tafasir they even go beyond that and they say, oh, you know, khamr has a bitter aftertaste, so that's why you will be eating fruit to overcome. You know, they get very, um, uh, but again, just to give you a taste of, here is, what Jilani, for instance, says about the issue of cats. يَتَنَازَعُونَ وَتَجَزَبُونَ فِيهَا كَأْسًا مِنْ رَحِيقِ التَّحْقِيقِ مِنْ رَحِيقِ التَّحْقِيقِ So, the cats here is not an alcohol. But it is the um, uh, it, it's idiomatic. It, it, it's the intoxication of increased knowledge and consciousness. Complete paradigm shift. Ijilani says, well, and Ibn Arabi actually talks about this as well. It says, well, a pious Muslim would have never drank alcohol. So they wouldn't miss it. 
Yes, for these Arabs, at the time, they were all alcoholics. They, at the time Islam is revealed, they drank all the time. And it was going to be a major challenge when Islam bans alcohol because they're going to go through serious alcohol withdrawal. And so, you, it, it, you find fascinating discourse that yes, it was appealing to the minds of these simple Arabs who lived to make money and to get drunk and to chase pr prostitutes, but that the meaning can't stop there. That the meaning of the Quran unfolds to levels of, of sophistication according to the intended audience at every age and time. So, why for the pre-Islamic Arabs, Ikas would have met with the alcohol they miss? As Ibn Arabi says, well, someone who's never drank alcohol in their life, why would they miss it? What would an aftertaste of alcohol and, and eating fruit to overcome the aftertaste mean? What would be this, the attraction of drinking hum that doesn't intoxicate for someone who never drank hum. Nothing. I don't miss hum. I never tried hum. It smells disgusting. Stinky. So, it, you know, if Jannah is going to be about drinking hum, no thank you. But if it's going to be about rahiq al-tahqiq, that this symbolizes increased divinity and closeness to divinity, then I am there. And I want it, and I want it passionately. We get to something, of course, that the Islamophobes have made, Unfortunately, because Muslims don't know their tradition and because of the influence of the Hur al Ain and Wayatuf Alayim Gulmanun Lahum Kanahum Lukun Maknun. So By the way, when it says um, Ibn Arabi says for those who made it to heaven but in a piggish state, I don't remember exactly the phrase he uses, but basically they're, 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 they're pigs, they love <laughs> Allah will say, okay, here's your word, eat meat. But for those who may make it to the elevated status of in Allah's eye, they would be in a state where they at all do not covet meat. They have elevated themselves beyond even missing meat. So, and again, I'll give you 
Jilani basically says it's whatever it's it, it becomes whatever is necessary for mere substance. So, it is contingent on an ishtihad. So, if you have no ishtihad for mere substance, in other words, you, you, you don't want food at all, then that becomes your reality. Anyway, in the interest of time, let's move, because I want to get to... Um, okay. Um, yeah, ala surur al-masfufa wa zawajnahum bihur ayin, bihur ayin. And they will marry hur ayin, right? And in verse 24, وَيَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ غِرْمَانٌ لَهُمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ لُؤْلُؤٌ مَكْنُونٌ The traditionists, and what you will find a lot of the in the English translations, hurin are beautiful, wide-eyed beings, females, that are created for the sole purpose of sexual pleasure. Okay, but how about وَيَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ غِلْمَانٌ لَهُمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ لُؤْلُؤٌ مَكْنُونٌ why will be beautiful boys be serving them? The Islamophobes said, ah, see, the Muslim God is going to create beautiful children to be sexually used. And I've received a gazillion emails either by Islamophobes pretending to be Muslim or by real Muslims saying, I am having a crisis of faith. How could Allah do this? Doesn't it say that Allah is going to create beautiful little boys to be enjoyed sexually? Look at the Quran. Look at the verses. وَزَوَّجْنَاهُمْ بِحُورٍ عِينٍ This is the one. The second, وَيَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ غُلْمَانٌ لَهُمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ لُؤْلُؤٌ مَكْمُونٌ Is there, for all the, those who say they're traditionists and literalists, is there an explicit reference to sexual use? Let me take you first with the Hurain. So this is, I, I found, again, I, I couldn't find the Mawardi, but I found, uh, well, hold on, I'll find it. It's technology, so I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, So, Hurain literally wide eyed 
which for Arabs at the time was a sign of beauty. But you could understand it if you wanted as beings created for sexual pleasure, but you're reading into the text. Here is what Al-Mataridi says about it. No, it's not in, it's not in the Matridi, so it's, it's uh, I, I misremember. But it's an, I think it might, it must be in Ibn Ashwur. Anyway, I'll, I'll summarize the debate for you. The, the debate is that here, when you talk about marrying someone in, in Arabic at that time, the word that you use is enkahnahu. Tazwij is to couple someone with someone else. An inkah is what we call an actual marriage. Coupling could include marriage, but could be other than marriage. So that's why so you take someone like Jilani, and he says, "Zawajnahum, ay, wakarnahum istinasa minna iyahum, bichurunin, musawaratin min al-ma'arif wal-haqaiq al-munkashif lahum al-mashhuda bi'ayun basairihim." What he's saying is. And for modern Muslims, you have to pay attention. What he's saying is, you are going to be coupled with a companion. But that companion is a companion of your own state of spirit and knowledge. Took it out of the realm of gender and sex completely. You're going to have companionship. But that companionship is like in Mullah Sadra's language or in his imagery, it's like a hologram of your own state of consciousness. This is well represented in the Islamic tradition, like, like the idea that there will be these beings created for sex is well represented. It is up to you to decide which one you want to adopt. Personally, I don't find the idea that Allah is going to create beings so I can enjoy them sexually, just or fair, or what does sexual desire mean in the hereafter? I mean, it's a pain in the here now. Do you really want it in the hereafter? Maybe some of you do, I, I don't know. But as your consciousness elevates, If you want companionship, 
is not going to be the companionship of sex. It's too passive. Too... It's like a meal, you know. Hurayin is by its nature an ambiguous expression. And zawajnehu means you couple it. Now, there is a third perspective that I was trying to find in Mataridi, but I think it's in Ibn Ashur. It's not I think, I'm sure it's in Ibn Ashur. Which is actually you find in a lot, you'll find it in Razi as well, that the Hurayin are, if you're, which is a well-represented perspective, if your spouse makes it to heaven, then you will be coupled here with your spouse, but your spouse will be very beautiful. So you will get the best beautiful version of your spouse if that is your companionship in the hereafter. I mean, I guess I'm... I don't find that as convincing as what I read in the idea that you are coupled with a companionship of your own consciousness. But maybe, Allah Alam. You know, Allah Alam. Now, how about the Hulman? وَيَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ غُلْمَانٌ لَهُمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ لُؤْلُؤْ مَكْنُونَ This is Ayat 24. The boys that are supposed to What is the significance of غُلْمَان that يَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ It could be understood that these, well, let's see, what does the, the translation say? What is the, how is it translated? In, um, why am I not finding it? Uh, and, oh, I found it. And there will go round boy servants of theirs to serve them as if they were preserved pearls. So, boy servants to serve, does this bring a certain social practice to mind, cultural practice to mind? Slaves, right? But is this what the Quran is referring to? Oh man, uh, you see, I don't trust technology because of this. It, it, it completely went away. Uh, okay, hold on. Thank you. 
So this is from, now this time I'm sure because I, I so this is from Al-Mardi. It says that the, the reference to the Ghulman, that أن يكون الأطفال من أولادهم الذين سبقوهم فأقر الله بهم أعينهم. So, Bawardi says there are two perspectives. That they are angelic boys that unrelated to you that are serving, whatever that service is. But the second perspective is that they are your own children. And that your proof doesn't mean service, but means they will be with you. This, especially among those who said that, and this was existed in the Jewish tradition, by the way, that if you have a child that dies, that's especially the ghulam that will be with you and will be presented in their best form. There is a theological debate about whether, because some theologians didn't like that. It's like the Jewish tradition, um, which is, in my opinion, not a good reason to reject it. Um, but here is the other perspective. So it says, "Gulmanun lahum, al-gulman, kyanun musawar, min qawahim al-mudrika, al-mamluka lahum, al-musakhara li-nufusihim al-mutmainna al-radiya bi-muqtadiyat al-qadai al-ilahi." فهم في غاية الصفاء عن كدر الهواء ورعونات الرياء واللؤلؤ المكنون مصون محفوظ في أصداف أشباحهم أشباحهم عن التلطخ بقاذورات الدنيا الدنيا What he's saying is the amazing perspective of a hologram of your own being being in your company. So, put it bluntly in this perspective that unfortunately modern Muslims have largely forgotten is that to the extent to you elevate your spirit and your soul on this earth will be your companionship in the hereafter. So think of it this way. If you're a nag, do you want to, a companion who's a nag? If you're abusive and you make it to heaven, do you want a companion who's abusive? Beat the heck out of you? 
If you're a liar, do you want a companion who's a liar? If you are cold and harsh and unfeeling, do you want a companion who's cold and harsh and unfeeling? It's a complete paradigm shift. Work to establish your companion in the hereafter now. Because literally, as you are treating others, you will be treated. This is if you make it to Jannah. If you make it to hell, goodbye. But think of what companion you want. If you want a loving, caring, sensitive companion, that's going to be your Hur'in and that's going to be your whole man. This tradition, although it is buried in the modern age, was, it's what people, when, when, when people talk about going in training and working on their spiritual being, it is not that they're reading Riyadh al-Salihin or Targhib al-Targhib and learning, you know, just hadith here, or hadith there. They're understanding what it means to fully be in the presence of the divine and to work to cleanse the self so that you do not create a disaster in the hereafter. Because for, for a person like that, you take the idea of the hereafter very seriously. Your companion will be an image of you. So you better work hard because you're going to get a taste of your own medicine if you make it to heaven. How can more bluntly we put it? A taste of your own medicine. You know, personally, I want someone who constantly talks to me about books. So I work very hard on doing that. I want someone who just reaps about books all the time. So that's what I work very hard for. Okay. Now, now here, Surah Tutur, after giving you that challenging first the absoluteness of consequence and punishment, the complexity of reward and the nuance of reward, but the endless limits of reward. The crux of the matter as people, and the imagery here is that people that people will start talking about what is it that they've done 
that ended up being successful. Normally, we are accustomed to when people are starting chattering to each other, with each other, in the Quran, it's because they're in trouble. But here, the chatter is because they are reflecting upon what they did right. And as so many have pointed out, the essence of it is they understood that their entire entire gaze, entire orientation is towards al-barr al-rahim. This is verse 28. What is al-barr al-rahim? Let's see what the, how he translated. Rahim, of course, is the merciful. But bar is where I want to... Um, there is a, a wonderful book, 12-volume book about Asma'ullah husna in one of the boxes um, that is among the best books written in the Islamic tradition where you can read a very long discourse, but a beautiful discourse on Al-Barr. So, okay, so the translation um, is, verily he is Al-Barr, he wrote it in Arabic, the most subtle, kind, courteous, and generous, the most merciful. Yeah, because Barr is just hard to translate. Um, Al-Barr is a quality one is a quality of faithfulness and someone who never denies what one deserves but Al-Birr and the quality of Al-Bar is someone who goes beyond what justice requires. So when you say, so you've directed your attention with a full awareness that this same God who just talked to you about the consequences of punishment the very essence, the very nature of this God, who we are going, we are working towards becoming in the eye of God, remember, because this is, I keep underscoring this, is that this is a God that doesn't just, is not just about treating you as your just reward, but is going to be, go beyond justice, to embrace you. And here in Surah Al-Tur is shifting. Look at the Quranic style. It's like taking your, your, your entire being and telling you, okay, now it's time to reflect more deeply 
about your relationship with Allah and who is Allah. Now, then it goes to our exemplar. Uh, and that is why the, the Prophet is so core to everything. Our exemplar. And says, so now that I've given you this introduction from the Sajr, the philosophical Sajr, to a harsh introduction to a reality that you don't want to confront, to the subtlety of what rewards are, the challenge that was in meaningful and truly a challenge for Arabs. So, they say, we know, Allah speaking, say, Allah knows Muhammad, that they try to find ways to marginalize you, to ignore you. So, we know that sometimes they say you're insane, sometimes you say that you're a sorcerer, Sometimes they say you're a poet. And we know something that you, Muhammad, weren't present for. And that recently they said, well, you know, maybe if we just ignore him like we've ignored some particular poets, and Nebuchadnezzar Zubiani is the one who they were talking about. Maybe eventually his poetry, he, he will be ignored, will be marginalized and forgotten. That's when 31, Well, if that, this is their thinking. And this, by the way, it, it, it it, several people, according to reports, converted because that conversation the Prophet wasn't present for. So when the Quran said that, according to the Prophet, it's like, how the heck did he know? Anyway. Say, okay, fine. Then, wait, let's wait it out. But, If this is what your mind is telling you, is this is what your the, the, your, the, your intellect is able to, to, to generate, then why don't you come up with a revelation or a text or a prose like this Quran? This is why when we keep saying, because often when in America, when we say the, the, the miracle of the Prophet Muhammad was the Quran. People who 
I mean, and most Arabs, by the way, their relation to Arabic is abysmal. I mean, the, the, just because you're Arab doesn't mean you actually know Quranic Arabic. Colonialism has destroyed the relationship between Arabs and their language. But it was truly for for these Arabs not to be able to generate a prose like the Quran, it was truly a momentous thing. It was no marginal issue. And that is why the Quran repeatedly challenges them and say, fine, you're saying he's crazy, he's insane, he's a poet, then surely you can do better or the same. Even come up with a little bit like that. Okay, let's pause here, pray Maghrib, and then we're close. So, you know, I can't really see you, but I feel energy that's a little exhausted, so I don't know. Yes, or? No, 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 no. no. Okay, my, so my thermometer is off. That happens all the time. So, just so um, Sharif... Uh, should we? The, the, this is a, um, a translation of the Quran, um, decoding the Quran, a unique Sufi interpretation, Ahmad Halusi, or Hulusi, Turkish, uh, about the resting on couches arranged in rows. He says, the conscious humans manifesting the forces of the names with Hodis, Hodi'in. Bodies with superior and clear vision. All expression in the Quran of female holies are symbolic, allegoric expressions like other metaphors pertaining to the life of paradise. This statement um, um, I, I don't know. Anyway, the example metaphor of paradise or the allegoric descriptions, metaphoric representations of paradise are indications of this truth. Truth. Note that there is also a hadith which states that Allah says, I have prepared for the righteous servants things which no eye has ever seen and no ear has ever heard and you human heart or mind has ever perceived. This is just consistent with the long established um, I mean, and it's not just Sufi, because we also find this in Tafsir al-Mataridi, we find it in so-called more rationalist Tafsirs, which say that in the same way that the nature of reality on earth will be undone, literally, like you, you've taken it apart. The nature of reality in the hereafter is not like the reality that we've lived on in this earth. And that when Allah talks about values, then we can relate to them. Like Zawajnahu, that you will be coupled with. But that it, but everything else whether ku'us or fakiha or zil um, or that they do not necessarily have the same material meaning. Um, 
I just the on the issue of Ghulman and uh, the Islamophobes and um, when the Islamophobes said, "Oh, see the," uh, which of course, it's not just some, but evangelists who are very active now in the Muslim world, um, because the the Trump era in violation of federal law, uh, we were using our own political offices to force Muslim countries to give um, entrance visas to missionaries. Um, anyway, I don't know if it's going to continue in the Biden era or not, but anyway, the, of course, what the, the this point about uh, or your God creates boys to be sexually used. Uh, the genesis of that, where it came from, was in the 90s, there were, it started with one Egyptian uh, Muslim scholar, and then a couple of others followed suit, who wanted, who argued which was an unprecedented argument. It has no, I mean, you can't, it was unmentioned before, um, that in the hereafter, those who are homosexual and resist acting on their homosexuality, in the, in the hereafter, God will reward them by giving them homosexual partnership partners. In other words, God will fulfill this their sexual orientation in the hereafter as a reward. And they pointed to Yatuf Gulman as evidence of that. So sometimes in the nineties, because the, the Islamophobes do their homework and they, they're very diligent in their work, unlike us. They found that. And once they found it, they jumped on it. And they turned it into, instead of an, a novel argument by a, an Egyptian fellow, uh, they turned it into, well, this is the entire Islamic tradition. But it's unprecedented, the idea that these men are there for sexual service. I mean, the the even the most trad literalist traditionist said that their servants basically helping you out with your physical needs or pouring you drinks or bringing you fruit, but nothing about sex. But it is all descriptions. If you study the descriptions of Jannah in the Quran, they all address a layered reality. In other words, they're talking to levels of consciousness and levels of moral awareness. You're, for someone like Jilani, the Ghulman is a companionship of a reflection of their own being, like the Hurin. For someone like Ibn Kathir, there are people, there are kids who are very beautiful who are going to be pouring drinks and serving food. Um, you have a moral choice. 
you have a moral choice. But you, your moral choice has to be based on a relationship to the Qur'an, not on your whim. On this Qur'an becomes your friend, and it then talks to you. And when it talks to you, it tells you things. And then when we say layers of meaning, it is no longer an abstract concept. It becomes a reality in the same way that you, if you have a lifelong friend, you don't understand this friend. Well, if you're a horrible friend, if you understand this friend in a stereotypical way, or you've understand this friend in one way from childhood till death, then you have a crummy friendship. If you have a good friendship, your understanding of your friend will evolve with the various stages of life. So was the Quran. The way I understood the Quran as a child is very different than the way I understand the Quran now. And I hope it will still be different yet than the way I understand the Quran when I'm on my deathbed. Because it's a companion. And a companion constantly talks to you. Okay. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now this is 32, says, so, your intellects, your intellects, if your intellects are truly being honest with itself, tell you that you know Muhammad, you know he's not insane, you know he's no poet, you know he's no sorcerer, and more importantly, you know what you're hearing. And you know, you've lived with Arabic poetry your entire life, and you know this is not Arabic poetry. This is another type of discourse altogether. And you know that you can't match it, and you can't repeat it, and you can't even imitate it. By the way, there is a, an idiot missionary um, who broadcasts there's some very rich American woman. Why, why aren't there rich Muslims who do the same? I just don't understand. Very rich American woman. She, apparently, her husband died. And she inherited millions of dollars. So what did she decide to do with her millions of dollars? She decided to fund a 24-hour-7 institution in Greece, broadcasting from Greece, is TV program that does nothing but attack Muslims night and day, 24 hours 7. So she committed 20 million dollars to that enterprise. Now, so they go hire Arabic speaking people to go work for that program. A lot of them unfortunately are cops, but the guy I'm talking about is Moroccan. And they go and they, so this guy 
um, I don't even want to mention his name because he doesn't, it's not worth it, announced a competition funded, of course, by this rich widow, $20,000, it was raised then to $50,000 to any Arab who imitate, writes imitating the style of the Quran to prove that the Quranic challenge to Arabs is false. And he, of course, broadcasted the submissions. And, of course, they had a party about it. Like, oh, look, this submission is better than the Quran and so on. And I looked at the submissions and I just was, you know, I was pulling my hair and I said, why am I doing this to myself? You know, if anyone is going to listen to these submissions and they're going to say, yes, this is like the Quran or this is better than the Quran, then let them convert. I don't care. I mean, it, 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 what, what do you tell them? Then they are, then there's something really wrong. Because they're, they're, anyway, but of course, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I know a guy who said, oh, you know, I am I am a Muslim and I pray, but I submitted because I need the 50,000 and I thought if I win it, I'm going to donate a part of it to a mosque. And I was, you, you know, you're a complete idiot. But we live in strange times. What I just want someone out there in the ether, in the, in the whole world, just explain to me, why isn't there a, a Muslim rich widow that inherits money and gives 20 million to fund, you know, a group of really bright graduates to fight Islamophobia. I mean, why? Why? Why is it that they are willing to spend millions to fight Islam, not even promote Christianity, just fight Islam? And when you go to anyone to say, please donate for an Islamic cause, it's an interrogation. I mean, I've spent six hours with some very rich Muslims and at the end ended up with a check for $500. My hourly rate as a lawyer is far more than that. I wish I charged them as my hourly rate as a lawyer. Honestly, I just, I was, it's like, this is what I'm worth as a Muslim scholar, but if you come to me as a lawyer, you'll pay six fifty for an hour? I mean, what is this? Anyway, okay, I'm going off. Sorry. <laughs> I will continue complaining to the day Allah takes my soul because I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I don't understand. I mean, I just wish someone would, would I actually, I thought Allah give me some understanding because where are they? Why is it that they go build mosques and they, they don't care about any intelligent Muslim who's a graduate of the best schools or, you know, the brightest minds? No, no. We don't have time for that. We, we, we don't want to fund any of that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Public service. Anyone has a tranquilizer? So for all the blows. Okay. And then, of course, here is the challenge. Verse 34. And you, if you, you know, it, uh, there was a, 
this this is an important historical note. Um, just so you know how when we say that our minds as Muslims are colonized, the extent to which you know in the in the 1920s and 1930s, anyone from Azhar University that wanted to get ahead and have a chance of being appointed or even be in the in the running for either a minister of Al-Qaf in Egypt or Sheikh al-Azhar, you had to get your doctorate from France, not from Egypt, not from any Muslim country, but from France. So there were Azhar, Azhari graduates that went to the Sorbonne and wrote doctorates to appease their Orientalist advisors, made arguments that blow my mind. It, 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 no, no one, I mean, Edward Said didn't write about this because I don't think he was aware of it. But basically, for instance, some of them followed the line of argument by French Orientalists that the only reason that the Quran is special is because any competing text of the same nature must have been destroyed because none survived. No historical evidence whatsoever. Or all of the pre-Islamic poetry, this is the famous Tahsin argument, was fabricated intentionally to sound inferior to the Quran so that the Quran can be said to be special. And these are the same people who tell us Muslims are conspiracy-minded. And they're talking about a massive historical conspiracy where you invent pre-Islamic poetry and say, let's make it sound bad so that the Quran could sound better. What history is that? And these were Azhari. I mean, among them Tahseen, among them Zaki Mubarak, among them... We need to decolonize our minds and our hearts. Okay. So then after the challenge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows will not never be met, no one will write a text like the Quran. The rational challenge and the common sense challenge. Okay, one. Were you created out of a vacuum, out of nothing? Because the very first rule of logic is something can't exist out of nothing. This became known as the first cause argument, which the new atheists have tried to rebut. I, I don't, I mean, you, you're, you're free if you want to waste your time reading the stuff, but their rebuttals are contorted and constrained. So the first cause are aliens from outer space. Well, who created the aliens from outer space? I mean, it, it just, okay. 
or, and here we come, we're, we're weaving back to the beginning of the surah, with, again, the typical Quranic style. Or is it that you think that your intellects really fool you into thinking that you decide the fate of things? Of course, this is 37. The two mentions, أَمْ لَهُمْ سُلُّمٌ يَسْتَمِعُونَ فِيهِ فَلْيَأْتِ مُسْتَمَعِهُمْ بِسُلْطَانٍ مُبِينٍ أَمْ لَهُمْ أَمْ لَهُ الْبَنَاتِ وَلَكُمُ الْبَنُونَ These are contextual. The first is Ijaz because the Prophet ﷺ was not present when and if I had my notes, I would have told you his name, claimed that he hears the voice of the divine from the heavens. And this was in, in Nedwa, in, 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 in Mecca, in other words, the elders of Mecca. So when it confronted them with, well, you, you claim to hear what is said in the heavens, show me. Again, the impact of that was how the heck did he know that? Who, who, in fact, there's some, who among you went and told Muhammad that this we were talking about? And they all swore up and down that we didn't tell Muhammad, we didn't see Muhammad. The, the second was that a Meccan belief that, an old Meccan belief that the angels were Allah's daughters. The origins, where that belief came from is, is an interesting historical point, but that it's, of course, I mean, you can see the influence of Greek mythology because the uh, God's daughters, but God's daughters um, are eroticized in some of pre-Islamic poetry, the, 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 some of the more graphic uh, are eroticized and you know where you you say a, a, a woman um, um, what's the expression like um, dumps you um, you know a woman like breaks your heart so you go say I'm going to fall in love with one of the deities and I'm going to commit my life to her and then you start fantasizing about all the fun you're going to have together. Uh, and the, the Quran in two different occasions confronts the Meccans with the, how illogical that claim is. Why would God only have daughters? This is the context for it. Um, Where's 
Okay, so then, with the aid of the translation, just um, so, but yeah, were they created out of nothing, um, uh, or creation itself, or do they believe that they actually control the fate of of things? This is, or with them the treasures of your Lord, or are they the tyrants? It's not the tyrants. Musaiturun means, are they the ones who are in control? They, they, they lie to themselves if they believe they, they are. And then the reference to, do they have a stairway to the heavens, which we've talked about? And then the reference to God's daughters in 39, which we've talked about. Or is it which brings things to, or is it that they are worried? Uh, um, let me first read the, the, the translation. Um, or is it that you, Muhammad, as a wage from them, so that they are worried about your wage. Now, this is more subtle than that. Because here, it's actually jabbing the Meccans with the real cause for their resistance and their stubbornness which is the real cause why all of us often resist what we know to be the truth. Material interests. It is not... The Mecca, if it was a matter of paying Muhammad a fee, the Meccans offered him. Remember that the Meccans said, we will be happy to give you money for the rest of your life and make you a rich man. Just stop. But that's not the issue. The issue is the Meccans knew that this paradigm shift meant it changed the, the way that they live life itself will change. That their value system will change. That the social structure will change. Now, we often read this and just go on, like, oh, well, this, there were the Meccans. But really? How, how many of us don't follow? Because we're really worried about the maghram, the maghram, the cost. When all is said and done, we're just worried about the cost, the inconvenience, the disturbance, the insecurity. Remember, nations, civilizations, are built by risk-takers. If you have a people that don't take risks, no civilization is built, no progress is made. I hate to bring this example, but among the things that had a very harsh impact on me early on in my age is that I read all these 
this is the time I was learning Hebrew, and I read all these memorials, memoirs, about Israelis going working in kibbutz. They would leave their lucrative jobs as lawyers in New York and doctors in Chicago and go work in a kibbutz. No running water, working ridiculous hours, and why? For the sake of Zion and the promised land. And it killed me. Risk takers. They're not worried about the maghram or whatever maghram is, they're paying it. Us. How about us? Because I can tell you, all my family, if you told them I'm going to take, I'm going to do anything that's going to do anything that would just set a little question mark about my future, you know, everyone, we, 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 our fate was charted from the time we were babies. We we're all going to become doctors and uh, army officers and, you know, police officers. And it's like, the, the and yeah, it's, it's very jarring when, when, when then you, you, you get back to, then when you re when when you're honest with yourself and say, well, you know, how, well, what 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 is the price that I'm willing to pay? And and don't worry about other people. Don't you know? Don't say what the price are other people willing. To pay. Worry about yourself. What is the price that you're willing to pay? You know, don't, don't go around preaching about how everyone should sacrifice. Look at look at yourself. What sacrifices have you made? Okay. Sharif says, I always alienate rich people because and here, yeah, I guess he's right, because I, 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 you know, I don't think rich people like to hear stuff like that. Um, okay, so, so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, pause long with, you know, or have they, or, or do they know the world of ghaib, the world of the unseen, or is it that, they rely on their plotting, of course, referring to the the plans and the plots that were going out, uh, uh, directed at the prophet and the community of believers. But here is is a constant Quranic theme when it says "Fahum al-Makidun" that You live your you you live in life thinking that you are making plans that ultimately are securing you. But the 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 constant theme is that it all will turn out to be a mirage. 
and that's Rumul Makidun. But they are the ones who, in fact, um, are deluding themselves. And or is it that they have a God other than God? which is a, a famous Quranic phrase. Okay, but then we come So if they see a piece of heaven falling down, they would say clouds gathered in heaps. What is that referring to? Quite simply, it's referring to the ability of human beings to argue away any evidence that Allah leverages at them to the point that even when they see a clear, let's say, paranormal event, they will try to rationalize it away. And if they can't find a logical explanation, they will rationalize it existentially so that it's compartmentalized away. That if that is your inclination, then you simply won't see the messages in the same way that you won't hear the Quran. Because constantly you are determined to defend your privileges. And if your loyalty and commitment is the first and foremost, it, it's, um, you know, um, I know quite a few very rich uh, people from the Gulf, from Kuwait or Saudi Arabia or so on. I kid you not, I've seen it in, in my legal work. They will go to London and in one night, in a nightclub, drop 150,000 pounds or euros. But when it comes to paying the salaries of their employees, they will often delay the salaries or not pay. Some of their employees haven't been paid in months. But then in that same client, I, I worked with a, 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 a client who owed me some money, he was um, Saudi. Compared to what this guy was spending in Europe on nonsense, the money he owed me was like, you know, nothing, absolutely nothing. But just because what is the intellect, the, the commitments of a person like that? Privilege can twist your perception so much so that you would even feel justified in spending any amount on your own pleasure but finding every excuse like accounting not to pay people their rights. If you want to see a stark example of what privilege does, 
and then ultimately Surah Tur takes you back to where it started and says, okay, if you are determined, committed to your denials and your rationalizations, then there is nothing to do but wait. And then it turns to the Prophet and comforts him in a way that is a comfort to every believer who follows the Sunnah of the Prophet. There is there are processes. So Now here when it says be patient and persevere the hook Rabbik for the judgment of your Lord. The fact that these people have the freedom to deny is Hukmillah. The fact that they have the freedom to turn away from you, to argue with you, to commit themselves to their privileges, to be the jerks and idiots that they are, that is part of Allah's judgment. So you cannot imagine yourself capable of changing a reality that Allah has not changed. Confronted as much as this reality could be irrational, unreal, dark, whatever you will. But if the Prophet is in Allah's eye, because that's the Prophet, and Allah tells the Prophet, you are already in a special position so can do you rest so now don't worry and have fun no so in fact go worship when it comes to human beings they read it in the in the converse so what if you want to be to have that special status. Your leverage is the dhikr, but the dhikr is not a redundant automatic robotic process. The dhikr must take you back to the oath that Allah began with Surah Tutur. How healthy is your household, whether that household is your spirit, how healthy is your foundation, 
What are, who do you serve in your life? What are the objectives of your living? Why are you living? What are your priorities? What is your anchor? Is Allah's law your anchor, your tawb? Because dhikr, without that meticulous balance, is nothing. It's just chatter. And that's Surah Tutur. It, if you internalize it, and I've said this about several surahs, and I've said this before already, I've done how many surahs? If you even take the eight before Surah At-Tur, they are enough to transform your life completely. If they haven't, that means there's work that you need to do. It's as simple as that. Now add to it Surah At-Tur. Now you have nine. If you develop a relationship with the sore, but think of how much time you invest in anything. I mean, how much time have I invested in, in studying law? I mean, can I count the hours that I spent studying law? Or how much time have I invested in anything they liked? Compare that to how many hours then I've invested in the Quran. That must be the way you look at things. Because I know so many Muslims come and say, well, you know, I've tried. Okay, so, then, you know, when you start talking about the details, well, a lot of, the, a lot of them don't want to tell you the details. They, they get very impatient when you start asking them, okay, so how many actual hours, you know, tell me. Tell me how you spend your days and so on. But every single time, it turns out that it's very unequal. They've, they've spent, basically, read a surah. If they've read a surah five times, they think they've invested. Okay, compare that to any game that you've tried to play on video, on video council. I mean... I, Listen, I have a, a teenage son. I see how many hours he spends on his video games. Okay, anyway. Alhamdulillah.